resumed after a, something like a six-month hiatus, our uh, series on 1 Corinthians. And Matt spoke to us from uh, chapter 8, and I'm picking up this week in chapter 9. And just a reminder why we're looking at Corinth, uh, Corinthians. As we know, Paul planted a church in the city of Corinth. And actually, there's, there are some similarities between Corinth and with Liverpool. So they're both coastal trade cities. They're both cities famous for their sport, and actually we'll look at that in a bit more detail this morning. It just happened to fall on my week, what can I say? <laughs> uh, they're both cities that were somewhat in, in recovery. Both cities where there were multi-faiths, multi-cultures going on. And they're both uh, cities where there was all kinds of challenges. So we, we kind of set this out as Corinth was kind of the Liverpool of its day. And Paul is writing to his church that he's planted there. Um, where there's been some serious issues. We've we looked, at, looked at a lot of them in the chapters 1 to 7. There's some issues over uh, some of the behaviour of the church there, some of the, some of the things that they were accusing Paul of, some of the things that Paul had, was accusing them of. Um, and really Paul trying to bring them back and remind them uh, of the message that he'd originally spoken to him of, of grace. And last week we started what's effectively a, a kind of a three-part series in, in the middle of 1 Corinthians, chapters 8 to 10, Looking at the issue, as Matt, as Matt called it, of living lives of freedom in the borderlands. What he's getting at there is that as Christians, we are saved and the kingdom is already here, but it's not yet here. That, that tension that we live in, we live lives of, of faith in a world that actually, for the most part, especially in modern day Liverpool, modern day Britain, we're living in a quite secular society. And we have our homeland, as it were, our heartland, which is our lives here with God. But actually, we're also living that life out in what Matt calls the borderland, the lands where actually our faith and our, our heritage and our, our Christianity meets with a world that doesn't know God and how we live that out. And Matt did a great job last week of making quite a tricky passage. It was a, a particular issue that was, they were struggling with in Corinth about meat being offered to idols and whether it was a Christian living in, in, that, in that society, should you in, in, engage in that? Should you eat meat that are being offered to idols or should you avoid it? How do we live out a life of freedom in a life, in a world where the, the cultural norms are different. Matt did a really helpful talk on that. And the, the, the crux on that week was about when you're making that decision, think about the effect it has on your brother or sister in Christ. Is, is eating meat or not eating meat? You're free to do either. But think about the effect it has on someone who's with you. Is eating meat going to cause someone else to stumble and have a difficulty or, or, or not? This week, we're going to look at a different issue of living in the borderlands. And this is about how our behaviour, how our, how our lives lived in the borderlands affect the gospel. And it's really great, actually, Sheila bringing that word just at the end there, because we're going to be talking about our, our lives and living them out and, and bringing the gospel to people. And we are prompted, and there are so many opportunities, and we are called to do it. So we're going to focus on a few of those issues today. I have to say, in prepping this, I found this quite challenging, actually. I felt quite not, con- not condemned, because we don't feel con- condemnation, we're under grace, but I felt quite convicted, actually, about my, my role in sharing the gospel and, and, and the need to do it, and, and how I often don't take the opportunity when I could and, and, and should. And we are under grace, and I don't want anything I say this morning to feel like a condemnation or anything, any negativity, but I'd like to really challenge us this morning about our opportunity we have and our compelling that we have to preach the gospel and actually just bring that home to you and, and, and talk about what Paul's talking about this morning. But speaking from a place of freedom, a place of grace, a place of love, and I hope that, I hope that hits home this morning. 
So I think there are three main points I want to take from this passage. We're going to read it in three separate chunks. It's quite a long passage. We're going to take it a chunk at a time. But there's three things I think that we want to, we want to get home this morning. One is that, in terms of the gospel, we are compelled to share it. The second is that we need to adapt to share it. And the third, that we need to train ourselves to share the gospel. So we're going to look at those three things uh, as we go through this passage this morning. We're going to start in uh, verse 1, verses 1 to 19. If you've got a Bible, you want to turn to it, 1 Corinthians 9. Let's read this together. This is Paul writing to the church. Am, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, Surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship to the Lord. This is my defence to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it's written in the book of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, Is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered in the altar, on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights. And I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. So we know we are saved. As Christians, we receive grace. We are saved from our sins. We are in relationship with God. We are free. We are free from sin. We are free from death. We are free from hopelessness. We're free from punishment. We are free. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that we are free. And the temptation can be just to make the most of it and to enjoy it, to enjoy grace, to enjoy our church family, to enjoy our worship time with God to enjoy our community, to enjoy the love that you have with each other, to enjoy the friendships with our brothers and sisters in Christ and just get to know God better. And that is all fantastic. Don't hear me wrong. 
That is brilliant stuff. And we want to do all of those things. We want to build a community that loves God, that goes deeper with God together, that enjoys each other's uh, hospitality and friendship. The kingdom is already here. We want to enjoy it. We want to seek God's presence. We want to be filled with the spirit. I can't emphasize all that enough. All of that is blessed. All of that is righteous. All of that, all of that is not to be discouraged. In fact, it's completely encouraged. We want to do all of those things. But if that is the extent of our earthly lives, having received the gospel, then I think we're missing something. If all we do is enjoy the fruit of what we've received, then we've missed something because we're missing the Great Commission. Jesus charged us with a commission before we left the earth to take the gospel which has saved us and to bring it to the rest of the world that needs it so badly. He said, go and make disciples of all the nations. He didn't say sit in your church and wait for people to come to you. He said, go, go and make disciples. And it's incredible actually, because God could use any method he wants to expand his kingdom. He could use any method he wants to save people. He could do it any way, he could do it all on his own if he wants to. But do you know what? He chooses to use us. He chooses to involve us in the story. It's God who does the saving. It's God who does the, the, uh, the salvation, of course it is. But he actually makes us agents in that. He helps us, he uses us to bring the gospel to people for him. He creates the good news, but he uses us to spread it far and wide. And that is a huge thrill and a huge also responsibility for us. And Paul uses an interesting approach to try and illustrate this privilege. When it comes to spreading the gospel, Paul is simply world class at spreading the gospel. There was no one probably in all history better than Paul at spreading the gospel. If you think about it in football terms, we've just had the transfer window uh, close and something like one billion pounds, which is heinous, absolutely horrendous. But something like one billion pounds changed hands of one team buying another team's player, trying to buy the best person they possibly could to join their team and be part of their team. If Paul was a footballer, in terms of gospel terms, he would be the most expensive person on the planet. There was no one better than Paul in the Bible at spreading the gospel. No one did more in human terms in the New Testament than Paul. And Paul talks about, in the first part of this chapter, being paid and being supported in ministry as an apostle. He talks about an apostle's right. Paul was an apostle. Apostle meant that someone who had met with the risen Lord Jesus and then who was planting churches. And he says, you know, apostles have the right to be paid to do what they do. We, we have the right to be supported. We have the right to take a salary or a wage. Or we have the right to be supported and given food and, and shelter as we go about our jobs. Of course they do. They do an amazing thing. And the churches that they were serving should be supporting them. Just as if you're a soldier, you deserve to be paid for the work that you do, defending your country. Or if you're tending a flock, you get to share in some of the milk that, that comes from that flock. Or if you've planted a vineyard, you get to eat the grapes that you planted. Of course you do. The work that you've done, the things that you sow, you reap a harvest from. Paul really should have got more money than anyone for preaching the gospel. He should be earning top dollar. People should be throwing money towards him to do what he's doing because he is making amazing advances. If, if you're going to be paid for doing something, Paul was the best in his field. But actually, 
He didn't take any money, this passage says. In fact, Paul had a separate job that he did of his own accord to fund his ministry. Anyone remember what his job was? He was a tent maker. Paul supported himself in his ministry by earning money from tent making. Why? Because as this passage says, verse 15, I've not used any of these rights. Am I not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me? But I would rather die than allow anyone to dis- deprive me of the boast that when I preach the gospel, I can't boast since I am compelled to preach. I am compelled to preach. For Paul, preaching the gospel isn't work. It's not a job. It's not something he's doing under duress for money. He's compelled to do it. He feels it's a necessity, something that he simply can't not do. He feels a weight of responsibility. And it harks back to his conversion in Acts 9.15, where Paul is saved. And and it says in Acts 9.15, that Paul is going to be God's chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. God chose Paul to do this. And Paul says, I'm simply discharging the trust that's committed to me. It's my duty, it's my privilege, it's my pleasure, it's my calling. And he probably deserved all sorts of rewards and benefits of that. But do you know what? He's satisfied with proclaiming the gospel free of charge. It would be like the, imagine your football team getting the best player in the world free. Simply because that player says, oh, do you know what? I just love playing football so much. You don't need to pay me. I'm just happy doing it for free. I just love it so much. That's the equivalent of what we're saying here. Paul is just so caught up with preaching the gospel and doing what he does. He doesn't need any money or any support. He's just happy to go along and do it. He planted thriving churches. He brought thousands and thousands of people to Christ in cultures that would never have known him otherwise. But he served God without placing any burden or, any, or demanding anything from the church that he worked with. He never wanted to be accused of just doing it for the money. He never wanted to be accused of making a profit from the gospel. Where am I going with this? How does that apply to us today? Listen, we might not have the exact same distinct prestigious calling that Paul had on him. Paul is God's chosen instrument to go and do this in these places at this time. We're not apostles ourselves. But actually his challenge to us remains, we are commissioned by Jesus to go and make disciples. And Paul says in in Romans 9, Romans 10, sorry, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can someone hear without someone preaching to them? How are people in Liverpool in the 21st century going to respond to the gospel if no one preaches it to them? How are we going to fill this place on a Sunday morning with new people who've committed their lives to Jesus if we're not out there preaching the gospel. Kind of challenges. Are we compelled? Are we compelled to share the gospel? Really? Do we look out for those opportunities, like Sheila said, where we, we sense something, we sense the Holy Spirit prompting us, and we obey, and we do it, and we give the gospel to someone? 
do we recognise that the people around us, some of our nearest and dearest people, our friends, our family, our loved ones, may not get to join us in eternity unless someone is compelled to preach the gospel to them. Paul's passionate plea stemmed from a life-changing encounter that he had with Jesus. Jesus appeared to him. And he had an urgency to see as many come to know what he knew. That Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. The only thing that could restore humanity to God. Our urgency needs to be the same as Paul's. It does. When we look at those around us, those who are unsaved, do we see them simply as family and friends and acquaintances as part of our life on earth and that's as far as it goes? Or do we look at them with an eternal perspective? And think about, are they going to join us in heaven? We believe we're saved. We believe we're headed to paradise. We believe we're going to be with God forever. But do we think about whether our friends and family who don't know him are as well? And do we take the opportunity to let them know? God has made us agents, amazingly, in his redemption story. And he's given us some responsibility for spreading the gospel. It's his gospel. The gospel is powerful because of him. But he's given us the opportunity to participate in this and to share it. And Paul found that absolutely compelling. When he learned the truth about Jesus, he realised that it was vital news for the whole of mankind. And that there's no salvation, there's no forgiveness for humanity without the gospel. And that's why he says later on, we'll come to this in a few weeks, 1 Corinthians 15, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day. You see that first importance. That's what the gospel was for Paul. As soon as he received it, he realised, this is massive. I've got to share this. I've got to let people know. He knew it was life-changing. Do we recognise that ourselves? Do we know that we're here to pass something on as first importance? I've got to be honest, when I look at my life, I'm often less than compelled to share the gospel. I'm often ducking out of opportunities. I'm often not even thinking about the opportunities I've got. I'm not convinced at times for me that it is of first importance, if I'm absolutely honest. I miss so many opportunities. I get weighed down with the baggage of life. I get too concerned with worldly things sometimes. Like I enjoy exploring this borderline, exploring this world around us that we've got to enjoy. So much that I actually forget the commission that's on me to to bring the gospel to that place. That may be true for other people in the room. For others, people like the way Sheila talked to us this morning, we know that Sheila is a brilliant person at taking those opportunities. I'm sure she'll miss some as well, but I'm sure she's very, very good at finding those opportunities and going for it. Because she's compelled. But it's not just for Sheila to do this. If we leave it to Sheila, (laughs) you know what? We won't fill this place. (laughs) We won't see a whole city changed. It's on all of us. We're all to be compelled to do this. And it's a joy, it's a privilege to be be given the opportunity to be part of this story. The legacy that Paul's left behind is incredible. Imagine if we can leave that same legacy of, look, look what we did. We took the gospel. We brought it to Liverpool and God saved so many people. So that's the first point. We're not called to simply just enjoy what we've got here. Sunday mornings with you guys, I love them. I love it. It's brilliant. But that's not the end of what Freedom Church does. It's just the start. 
We're called to go beyond. We're called to go into those borderlands. Not to simply sit and explore and enjoy what we find here. But to bring the gospel to those who need it as of first importance. Okay, the second thing. Second part we're going to read is verses uh, 19 to 23. Though I am free and I belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in its blessings. The second point, do we make ourselves adaptable to maximise our preaching of the gospel? If we're compelled to preach the gospel, we need an audience. We need people to preach the gospel too in our lives. I was reading a book by a guy called Phil Moore, who's a New Frontiers leader down south, and he talked about, he's a, he's a brilliant speaker, and he ran this uh, a kind of missional training seminar, invited loads of people, trained them up in evangelism. The first thing they did at this seminar was he said, right, I want you to get a piece of paper, I want you to sketch out your, your network of people, the people who are close to you in your lives. I want you to write out all those people in your lives and identify where the non-Christians are. And about half the people in the room, when they looked at their piece of paper, struggled to find a single non-Christian in their network of close friends and family. Effectively, Phil said, they'd turned up for a day of make-believe training. <laughs> they turned up to be trained into how to share the gospel, but then none of them had anyone to share the gospel with. They were living their lives in a Christian bubble, they all thought spreading the gospel was a great idea. But they, didn't, they weren't making any sort of relationships, any sort of inroads where they could actually share it. They're saying to Fillmore, teach us how to reach our non-Christian friends. And he's saying, what non-Christian friends? You haven't got any. Being compelled to preach the gospel means we've got to put ourselves in a position to do it. Paul was a Pharisaic Jew with Roman citizenship. And he was entrusted to bring the gospel to both Jews and to Gentiles, people who weren't Jews. And he travelled all over to many different places and different people. Cities with completely different characteristics, different cultures, different backgrounds, different cultural norms. How did he do it so successfully? How did he manage to get the gospel out so successfully? The answer is in the text. He became all things to all people. It's a commonly quoted verse. We, we say it a lot, not just in, in, in Christian terms, but in the world as well. But the key to his success was, it, was his almost chameleon-like ability to adapt to the culture he was in, to identify with people, and to meet them where they were at. And he was pretty good at it as well. In fact, at different times in his ministry, he was so good at it, he was accused by the Jews of being too Gentile. He was accused by the Gentiles of being too Jewish. <laughs> That's how good he was at adapting. He was so good at blending in 
but reaching people with the gospel. But there's a couple of sub-points to this. It's, like, it's a three-point talk with four points, I hope you don't mind. Two key things about adapting. Number one, we adapt ourselves and not the gospel. And number two, we don't over-adapt. So this first bit, we adapt ourselves, not the gospel. This is absolutely true, absolutely vital. Becoming all things to all people is a difficult thing to do. It is. But it's not the whole part of the verse, is it? The verse says, I become all things to all people. We often quote that. But the full verse, the full context of it is that Paul became all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save son and I do it for the sake of the gospel. To share in its blessings. Why do we become all things to all people? Not just so we can enjoy what they enjoy. Not just so we can explore the borderlands rather than staying here, but it's to bring the gospel to people so that they might be saved. That's the end goal. And different parts of the borderlands required different types of adaptation. And Paul knew that, and he'd adapt his customs, his practices, his style of delivering the gospel to the different places he was in. But, and this is a big but, he never adapted the truth of the gospel. He might have changed the style he delivered it in, but he never ever pulled his punches and deviated from the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, that he lived and died and rose again for the forgiveness of sins and that all of us need that forgiveness of sins in order to be restored to God. That message never changed. No matter what culture he was in, no matter what city he was in, no matter which people he was speaking to, that gospel message was the same. That central message is not for adapting. We do not adapt the gospel message. Do you know what? The gospel doesn't need to change for for it to to reach people. It's God's gospel, not ours. It's his truth. It's his power that saves people. We don't need to change our gospel, his gospel, depending on the people that we're becoming all things to. We don't need to bend or break our message to try not to offend someone who might not agree with what we're saying. Because you know what? The gospel is offensive (laughs) to some. That's what the Bible says. In Corinthians 1.18, we looked at it in the first couple of weeks. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are saved, it is the power of God. To some people, the gospel is foolishness. It sounds stupid. What is this gospel you're talking about? It sounds mad. Later on in 2 Corinthians to one person, where are the aroma that brings death to the other, an aroma that brings life, and who is equal to such a task? To some people, when we bring the gospel, it's death to them. It stinks. They realise it's it's just not for them, or they don't, you know, they, they they're just so condemned by it. The gospel is quite offensive to some people, but it's the truth, and it's God's gospel, and it's what He is saving mankind with. Some people that we speak to, they, it, the gospel won't sit with them. It won't hit home. It won't, it won't change their lives because they'll, they'll put up barriers to it. They'll put up walls to it. They don't want to hear it. But the key is we don't change our message just to try and please them. We don't adapt it. We don't, we don't pull our punches. We do need to use sensitivity. We do need to use the prompting of the Holy Spirit to judge how and when is best to deliver the message. But the message itself that we all need salvation, we all need forgiveness, we all need restoration, and that comes through Jesus. 
that's key. We mustn't adapt it. Just to give an, an obvious example of, of where this might happen. We're in a world obsessed with wealth and power and prosperity. And some people have adapted the gospel message to say, do you know what? If you become a Christian, you'll be rich. If you become a Christian, you'll be healthy. If you become a Christian, it will unlock untold blessing in your life of, of, of worldly wealth. It's not true. In fact, we'll, we'll see in a minute. It's not, it's not true. The Bible doesn't promise worldly riches if we become Christians. It just doesn't. But some people have adapted the gospel to try and go to a culture which they know is obsessed with power and wealth and try to make it sweeter to people. The gospel doesn't need sweetening. It doesn't need it. But it can be easy to try and slip into those sort of things. That's the first thing about adapting to preach the gospel. Don't adapt the gospel itself. They need, people need to hear the truth. <clears throat> A second point is don't over-adapt. In becoming all things to all people, in adapting to people's culture, we must be careful not to go too far, not to stray so far from our homeland, not to stray so far from our lives with God that we can't get back from the borderland that we get sucked in to the borderland. Because that borderland contains some very tempting, very lucrative looking things. There is a lot of temptation. There's a lot of bright lights and glitter. There's a lot of pleasure to be had in the borderlands. And it can be easy to make such an effort to fit in with our friends, to reach them, to try and get to know them, that we end up actually abandoning our own position. We end up abandoning what we've gone to tell them about and just get sucked into living their lives. We can get so consumed with the earthly pursuits of friends and family that our gaze becomes distracted. And we don't actually do what we were compelled to do in the first place, which is to preach the gospel. Just last night, I was out with some friends. Um, David here, my brother-in-law is here. We share the same group of, of mates, a group of lads who we've known for many, many years. And they're not, they're not Christians, very, very dear to us, though we love them to bits. And, and over the years, we've both tried countless times to share the gospel with them. And we spent a lot of time with them when we've gone out with them. We've been to all sorts of different places, far and wide, enjoying time with them. Um, and last night was another example of going to... It was a wedding party. One of the lads has got remarried. Um, and they were having a big night out, big night out in town. And the temptation was to go and just enjoy it and to... And, and not what they were doing. They were, they were going out to get hammered. They were going out to go around town, drink a load of drinks, have a good time, enjoy that pleasure. And we can participate in some of that. I've learned over the years to where the line is, where I need to stop. Do you know what? I've made some mistakes down the years, just being honest. Sometimes I've been out with them and I've got, I've got so sucked into the, the enjoyment of going out with these lads and having a drink or whatever that actually I've, I've probably crossed the line. And I've got sucked too far into the borderland and, and wanting to reach them and wanting to identify them with them and wanting to get to know them and show, look, hey, I can, I'm just like you guys. I've, I've abandoned my homeland sometimes and I've gone too far into their borderlands and I've done some damage there because they've not realised, that they've lost the realisation that I'm different somehow. They can't see what's different about my life when I do that. They can't see actually, hang on, there's something in his life that stops him from doing some of the stuff that we do. Well, if I do that stuff, then we've lost that differential. Last night was fine, by the way. But can you see what I'm saying? We can get so keen on, on going out and reaching people, which is great, we need to do it. 
but we must remember where our homeland is. We must remember that we're in their borderland and we don't want to go so far in that we can't get back out. If that makes sense. At different times, I've thought, when I have blown it with them, I've thought, do I just need to pull back? Do I just need to say, do you know what, guys, I'm not going to go out with you anymore. I'm not going to go and meet up with you because it's, I'm just, I'm doing it wrong. And I think the answer is no. Because if I don't, who will? Those guys are not going to magically walk in here on Sunday morning. They're not going to decide one Sunday morning, do you know what, I think I'm going to get out of bed and go to church because I want to hear the gospel. They're not. Unless something amazing happens. I need to keep going and going and going to them and giving them opportunities to hear the gospel. David does too. We both need to just keep praying and hoping and keep living a life that shows them who Jesus is. Because if we don't, who will? So we need to be out there, guys. We need to be out there mixing with non-Christians. We need to be out there engaging with them. We need to go meet people where they're at. And I know there's countless examples in this room of the way different people do that. I know Ronnie, for example, goes to a dancing club, don't you, when you go and meet with some people. Um, looking around the room. I know guys started going to a pub locally, haven't you, trying to, trying to meet some people. Um, there's loads of examples. They've all fallen out of my head right now. Debbie, with her craft night, does it. Neil goes to the pub with some guys every week. You know, we need to get out there and do it, guys. So we don't want to pull back from the world. We need to be out there. But the trick is that, that old chestnut of, of being in the world, but not of the world, isn't it? Of getting out there, getting into the places, that, going out to people, reaching them, but not getting sucked out there that we can't get back in. That's the second point then. So we've looked at, being, we need to be compelled to preach the gospel and we need to adapt our methods of preaching the gospel. The third thing we're looking at then, this is where we get a bit sporty, is training to preach the gospel. The question I'm asking here, are we in prize-winning shape for preaching the gospel? This is the end of the chapter, verses, nine, uh, verses 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. The context of this, and this is actually a brilliant example of what I mean by Paul becoming all things to all people. Corinth said it was a sporting city. It used to hold an event, a huge event called the Isthmian Games, easy to say. Isthmian Games, and it, it took place each year either side of the ancient Olympic Games. It was a huge, huge event. It, was, it made Corinth famous. It included things like chariot racing, wrestling, seemingly quite naked wrestling from that photo. Um, apologies if that offends anyone. Um, boxing, and for the ladies, some poetry and singing. <laughs> I don't know. Um, 
Paul knew his audience in Corinth. In this part of the on this part of the passage, he's using language which he knows is going to hit home with those in Corinth. He knows it's a sporty city. He knows the context that they're in, and so he adapts his language to get his message across. He's preaching to the choir. When he starts talking about sport and training and winning a prize, he knows they understand exactly what he's saying. What Paul's saying here, he's under no illusions. You know what? Preaching the gospel, making disciples, being all things to all people, it's flipping tough. It's difficult. But he wants to be part of that gospel juggernaut. He wants to be part of what God's doing. What God's doing. He wants to keep up with the move of the gospel and share in the amazing journey of God's kingdom expanding. And he knows that if he wants to keep up, if he wants to play a part in it, he can't do it half-heartedly. It requires commitment, training, work, study, suffering. Paul's ministry, Paul's missionary journeys, they weren't like a nice bit of interrailing around Europe. <laughs> it wasn't a nice jolly, seeing the sights. He was working seriously hard, beating his own body, as he says. He suffered. And why? Because he was competing for a lasting crown. And this is, again, Paul understanding his culture. In the Isthmian Games, if you won the race, you would receive a crown. But the crown wasn't a nice piece of gold. It was made usually of either celery, believe it or not, or pine leaves. It's not going to last very long, is it? It's a crown that you win, but that's going to eventually rot away. Paul knew that. That's why he uses that, that imagery. He's saying, I'm not competing for a crown that won't last. I'm competing for a crown that will last for eternity. Paul wants to be the best that he can be for God's purposes. He wants to be in the best possible position to share the gospel, to fill, fulfill his compelling. And we are promised an incredible reward for serving God and for winning people for Christ. Not least, the knowledge that those people we see saved, we get to spend eternity with them. What more of a lasting reward can that be? We get to spend eternity with the people that we help, the people that we preach the gospel to who come into, who come into the kingdom. But Paul knows that like an athlete trying to win the prize, it doesn't come easily. He can't half-heartedly run that race with any expectation of winning. He needs to be in peak condition. What does it take to win a race? What does it take, if we look at modern times, Mo Farah, incredible, incredible Olympian. He's won four gold medals in the last two Olympic Games. Do you know what he does to train to win his Olympic gold? On a typical day, he'll get up in the morning and he'll run six or seven miles at sort of five, six minute mile pace. He'll do a few other bits during his day and then they go out in the evening and they'll run another 10 or 11 miles at five, six minute mile pace. He'll do that pretty much every day of the week. Apart from one day when he goes up into the hills and does sprints on hill sprints, hill sprints, hill sprints. Repetition, repetition, repetition. And that's all building up to Sunday. And on Sunday, he'll run somewhere between 22 and 27 miles at marathon pace. About five minute, 40 a mile. Every Sunday, usually at altitude, in the hills, in the mountains, somewhere very hot and difficult to run. And then on Monday, he does a 10-mile recovery run. <laughs> a recovery run. I don't think I've, if you add up all the running I've done ever, I don't think I've done 10 miles. <laughs> he does that to recover from running 22 miles a day before. 
utterly grueling, isn't it? All that hard work, all those miles, all that beating his own body, training himself into the best possible condition. Something like 135 miles he runs every single week to win a little disc of gold. It's not even gold, actually. Gold medals aren't made of gold, you know. He beats his body into submission for winning the prize that he desires. Paul does the same. Paul beats his body into submission. The prize he's after is of standing before God in glory and receiving his reward, receiving God's words of well done, good and faithful servant. Here's your reward. The prize of seeing countless numbers of souls won for God. Each person saved through Paul's ministry was a prize to him, like a gold medal to him. And when he says he put his body through it, he really, really means it. We'll come across this in a couple of chapters time, but it bears repeating today. This is the stuff that Paul went through for the gospel. I have worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled, and I've often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and I've often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Sacrificed. He made sacrifices. He denied himself some of the things of the world, some of those glitzy, glamorous things that we know we, we are free to enjoy. Like we said last week, this freedom. We are free to enjoy. We're free to do things. But he denied himself for the sake of the gospel. He worshipped God. He spent quality time with him. He fed on God. And he spent time with his brothers and sisters who nourished him spiritually who ministered to him, who supported him, who helped him. I love that bit at the end. All those other suffering things, but the bit at the end that really gets me. I felt the pressure of my concern for the churches. It wasn't just wham, bam, you're saved, I'm moving on to the next place. He felt something really strong. For each of those people he'd, been, he'd helped to, to save, each one was a prize to him. And if any, any of them were struggling, if any of them felt weak, he felt that weakness. If anyone was led into sin, it really got to him because he wanted them to enjoy what he enjoyed. Paul was all out for God. Absolutely all out for God. And as a church, we cannot run this race half-heartedly. If we're going to see some of the stuff happen that Paul saw happen, we can't do it half-heartedly. We won't win the prize if we don't do this right. We will not see our friends and our family and those around us saved without some hard work and some sacrifice. Without spending quality time with God and feeding on him in the word and in prayer and in worship. If we're not doing that, we're not going to be motivated. We're not going to be ready to do it. Listen, our salvation is secure. It is. We are free. We're completely covered by grace. We are hidden in God. All those things are true. 
And they're amazing things to enjoy. But you know what? We can enjoy an even greater prize if we share that freedom. If we share that grace. If we share that truth with others. Just how much sweeter would it feel knowing that we brought others with us. And to do that, we need to train. We need to pray hard. We need to spend time soaking up the word. Spend time worshipping God. Getting to know him better. And then getting out into those borderlands. Getting out and meeting people where they're at with the gospel. That's our call. That's, what's, that's what we're all called to do. As we, as we finish, Freedom Church, our vision, it's on these, these two banners. Loving God and loving one another. Loving Liverpool, loving the nations. We won't shine bright in the city if all we're about is in this room on a Sunday morning or in someone's lounge on a Wednesday night. We need to take what has set us free and take it to all those people around us in our lives, our friends, our family, our work colleagues. We need to reach them with this truth because it is truth that truly sets us free. Truth which changes lives. If we want to shine bright in this city, we need to get out into those borderlands. We need to adapt. We need to become all things to all people. But we also need to retain that, that light. We need to not over-adapt. Each one of us, as a whole church, not just the few of us up here with a microphone on a Sunday morning, but all of us, need to feel compelled to preach the gospel. We all are. And that's why as a church, when, we, when we're thinking of events to do for mission... We don't just do everything here on a Sunday morning. We don't say, right, we're going to do a big evangelistic event. It's going to be in church on a Sunday morning. Let's hope everyone comes. We don't do that, do we? We go out. We do big events in the park. We do an intro course in a restaurant, which is just a welcoming place where anyone can come. We hold events in pubs, anywhere, you know. We'll get out there because we know that people aren't just going to magically turn up here on a Sunday morning. We've got to get out and meet the culture around us, but retain that gospel truth.